Welcome to the Investing Tutor Podcast, the show for professionals looking to master the most up-to-date strategies needed to build wealth and provide a stable financial future. Here's your host, Dr. Hans Boateng. Hey friends, Dr. Hans here, The Investing Tutor, and as always, I have an incredible episode for you today. So Cody Jackson joins us on the podcast, and friends, I must say, you are in for a treat. So Cody is a licensed pharmacist, just like I am, but then he's also a Christian minister. We've been connected on LinkedIn for a while now, and he commented on one of my posts about whole life insurance. And later I found out that he's had his own personal experience with this financial product. And I wanted to get him on the podcast, not only to talk about life insurance, but to also talk about money, the topic of debt, investing, how to balance all of these different aspects of our lives and how it ties into the greater purpose of what we are each called to do in life. So without further ado, help me welcome Dr. Cody Jackson. Dr. Hans, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be a part of the conversation today. Yes, likewise. Cody, I want us to dive right in. So you remember my post about life insurance. I'm just curious, how did that post resonate with you? And um, were you surprised by the negative comments by individuals who really didn't understand what I was trying to put across, their whole life insurance policies? Yeah, absolutely. Really, to both points. Um, It kind of resonates with me because Personal finance is is something I am passionate about, uh, mainly because it is personal. It affects me directly, but it also affects the generation that will come after me. And as I've kind of progressed in my financial journey, I've learned that there are different things from as small as trying to find better ways to, you know, watch television and save money that way to the larger uh, kind of money pits that we find in certain products, which ended up for me being life insurance. I realized that I wasn't providing my family with the best plan possible, both for me making it to retirement. And then also me, uh, unfortunately, if I end up having to pass away young, making sure that they're taken care of, that it's not something that, you know, they have to worry about replacing my income as much. And I found that the product that I had was not near as, um, going to be able to meet those types of goals as what was available with term. And then when I got to seeing, you know, your post about it, just got excited because you were trying to put that word out there to save people from making some of the mistakes that I made. And it absolutely surprised me at how negative people could be about it. And you can kind of tell they don't fully understand kind of the process behind it all. And the fact that, you know, there just, there is a better way to do this. And certainly term life with good sound investing principles is the way to do that. Absolutely. You see, when a life insurance agent is selling a policy, it's interesting because a week ago I received an inbox message and it was from this lady. Interestingly, she's Ghanaian. She works for, I believe, New York Life or something. One of those insurance companies. She messaged me and she, I don't know if she read my bio. Obviously she didn't because she messaged me and she was like, Hans, 
really great to be connected with you on LinkedIn. I wanted to share with you an investment product that's going to guarantee you a fixed return and also protect your family over your entire lifetime. Are you interested in getting on the phone with me? And I was like, yeah. what? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she, she was probably, did you, did you actually get on the phone with her and have that conversation? I was so shocked because for me, I was like, is this actually what they are telling people that they can guarantee them an investment return? I mean, to actually receive that type of message actually scared me because an individual who doesn't know much about personal finance or about these specific financial products, they'll just read that inbox message. And you know how naturally humans are inclined to move, move towards something that is safe, right? So if an individual pitches a product as being safe, you know, guaranteed return, it's so attractive that if you don't do your research, you just easily end up purchasing it. But to answer your question, no, I didn't get on the phone because I told her, I want to hop on the phone with you, but I'll do so on one condition. I want to record it and make it available on my podcast. And obviously, you know what she said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that answer was no. Uh, she yes. apparently had not done her research on the client she was trying to uh, obtain there. Um, but I think a lot of what you just spoke to are, you know, something that when I was preparing for this, I looked back at, at my own personal story with how this type of policy was sold to me. And you really, you really hit the nail on the head with a couple of those points. One of the things that really gets sold on is number one, that you need life insurance your whole life. Um, and I think she mentioned that to you, something that you could cover your family uh, for, for, you know, your entire lifetime. But the thing about, life insurance is you life insurance purpose is not to be there your entire life or at least it shouldn't be you really only need the life insurance to replace your income should you die before retirement because if you have good financial planning and you're investing correctly and you're really paying attention to what you're doing and you're focused on this then there's no reason that you shouldn't be set up with a, a debt-free retirement where you have a good retirement nest egg that's going to replace your income and, and you don't really need to worry about your funeral expenses or any of those final expenses, because if you're debt free, there's nothing to pay um, if it happens later in life. And then if you um, die later in life, your funeral costs, the average funeral costs only seven to nine thousand dollars. So that should be more than well taken care of by a retirement account. If you die early, then they sell the point that, you know, you're going to protect your family. But in most of those cases, the death benefit is so much less than what you would get if you had a good sound term policy for the same time frame. So if I die early, the amount of money that we'll look at maybe a little later, if we dive into my actual, um, what I was sold on, the difference in what I, I paid was one thing, but also the death benefit was so much more uh, with term than it was with, with the whole life policy. Absolutely. And for anyone listening that might not understand, you know, the use of the word term life versus whole life or index universal life. So let me just take a moment to explain it. So in essence, there are two types of insurance policies. There's one that's term life, which is the very best. And we'll explain why shortly. And then there's another group on, you know, on the left-hand side, 
let's call them permanent life insurance, whole life, index, universal life, any type of life insurance policy that has something called cash value. So what happens is that most life insurance agents sell these permanent life insurance policies to people. And in all honesty, they lie to them. They try and make them believe that it's the very best thing and you need life insurance your whole life. But once you begin to look at the numbers, you clearly begin to see that this is a policy that's literally just making the sales agent a lot of money. And it's not necessarily benefiting you or your family. Whereas term life insurance, as Cody was alluding to, it allows you to buy a life insurance policy for a fixed period of time. Typically, ideally, let's say you need the life insurance policy for 30 years. So what you get to do is you're paying a very low price on a month-to-month basis. That term life insurance policy covers you for that period of time. So if anything is to happen to you, your family gets the death benefit. Now, individuals might be wondering, well, what if I outlive that 30-year time frame? The strategy is that that 30-year time frame, because you're paying a very low amount, it allows you to be able to invest more money into your future, right? So that at that 30-year point, when the term life policy falls off, you've invested so much that you're not even going to need life insurance. Cody, have I summarized it really well, or is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, No, I think you summarized it very well. I mean, the focus is that you are planning over that 30-year period that you're going to be ready to take care of yourself and your family at the end of that. And that's what you need the coverage for, is the coverage for what happens, what, what is the unexpected that could happen in that 30 years? Once you reach the end of that 30 years, if you have done these correctly and you've done your investing correctly and you've done your savings correctly, then you should be in a position that you don't long, you no longer need that type of coverage from the life insurance. Absolutely. Now, how did you find out that this whole life or this permanent life insurance policy which most people also know as index universal life insurance. How did you find out that it was one of the worst financial products that you could have? Basically, we had some insurance questions that we went to a local agent about. And over the course of talking about just finance in general, they began to talk about the benefits, as they called it, of an IUL. And so they gave me a book. They didn't really try to sell very hard. We were there for another family member. So they gave me a book to read about, you know, how the wealthy use um, whole life insurance policies as a way to build wealth and and to have a tax advantage and all that. So I read through the book and, and the book was a great seller as far as trying to sell you on what they would call the high points, which a lot of this we've discussed. But at the end of it, the more I got to thinking about the type of points they were making, it just didn't seem to add up. So I started devouring as much information as I possibly could about personal finance um, in general, about how to invest, uh, life insurance. And and so I came to the conclusion that you can talk about it very well, but mathematically, it just doesn't stack up um, in any way, shape or form. And so as I began to kind of go along my journey, I got really excited about the possibilities with a whole life insurance. But as as I really dug deep into the mechanics of it, 
um, I began to see things that, that just frankly don't make sense um, as to why you would choose that type of product over what we're talking about with term life plus the sound investing strategy. Absolutely. I like to say that when we don't understand something or if we don't have the knowledge, you know how they say saying knowledge is power, right? So if you lack knowledge, that means someone else has the power. And I feel that is what I see a lot in our generation because we are not taking the responsibility to educate ourselves. So then when we are seated with any professional and that individual is like, hey, let me show you how the rich and wealthy, you know, strategically use life insurance to build wealth. Automatically, you just believe what they are telling you because you don't have the knowledge. It isn't until you actually sit down, you pull out the documents that they give you all of these estimations and you begin to look at the numbers. And that's where you realize that you are literally being ripped off. So let's dive a little bit into the numbers. So what was the policy that you were sold and how did your cash value turn out? So what I originally purchased, I was at age 25 which would have been five more years of investments that I could have made, which as I've, I've done this a little more, I, I tend to get more frustrated with that I lost those five years. But I, I had a policy that was $300,000. That was my death benefit. I paid $156 a month plus a $50 annual fee, just a general fee for no other reason than it's just a fee. Um, and that totaled out to be about uh, $1,922 annually. The way the policy was set up, I had no cash value until year four. I broke even wow. at year 20. So, you know, when I really dove into those numbers, there's just, there's just got to be a much better way to do that. Um, and then that's where I ended up finding out about, you know, being able to do term life um, and being able to have that rest of that portion that I'm not paying out each month in a premium and being able to invest that and get a much better return. 25% of all of those whole life insurance policies lapse within that first three years. So 25% of those policies are sold and people receive no benefit whatsoever. 40% of those lapse within 10 years. So they lapse well before you even reach your break-even point. So only about 60% are seeing any return whatsoever. And even though they are receiving return, those returns are much less. So what Cody is sharing is that a lot of people with these life insurance policies that were sold to you as a way to build wealth and to copy the rich and wealthy, right? It sounds so great when you're hearing it well over 60% of people will not receive any benefit or money or whatsoever well beyond a 10-year period. So I actually have my table of guaranteed values in front of me. Mm. And even at, year, even at year three, my cash value is still zero. So three years of paying $156 a month if I had ran into a situation where I needed to surrender that policy or I'd surrendered it because I haven't paid my premiums, I would have had a zero cash value. So every dime that I put in over those three years would have been gone. It's interesting you shared this because for a $300,000 policy, you could have been paying about $20 a month for term life insurance. Absolutely. 
and you are paying 156. And for the first three years, 90% or so of that money just went into the pocket of the insurance sales agent. And they were telling you that this is a wealth building tools. And hey, read this book that's written by an author who probably is getting money from the insurance company as well. It's quite concerning. And frustrating. The more you dive into the numbers, you see that what you were sold on isn't true. From that experience, you clearly found out that term life insurance is the way. But term life insurance by itself without investing is not the way. You need to combine both, right? To get to a point where you are making returns that you know in the next 20 to 30 years or so, you will definitely not need any type of life insurance policy. But how did you educate yourself? How did you bring your knowledge to the point where you felt confident in your ability to manage your own investments? The way that I did that mainly is listening to um, as many podcasts as possible just to get different viewpoints, uh, reading as much material as I could, whether it was online or through um, books that I would find at the bookstore. And then also taking just values and things I would learn from those books and putting them on paper and trying to run the math myself. As you stated before, it's really uh, risky for anyone to put money in anything that they do not understand. So I really wanted to understand, you know, what I could expect reasonably uh, from investing and what was the best way to invest without having to maybe watch the ticker symbols go up and down throughout the day. Um, and their numbers go up and down throughout the day. So as I began to read up and research, I kind of discovered that, and this is how I compared it as far as, you know, how I kind of found out more that what I was doing wasn't the best way to do it, that we typically, in most circles, you'll define your standard of return based on the S&P 500. So, you know, pretty much if you're able to match the stock market, which is, you know, kind of defined by the S&P 500 for most people, um, at least in general, then, then you've done well. If you do less than that, then you would have been better putting your money um, in the market and just letting it go. And then if you've done better, then, then you're, you're definitely happy there. You've done better. So really the way that I compared that when I got into the insurance piece of my finances, I had to figure out a way to compare these things apples to apples. So looking at um, the stock market, the stock market typically over the past 90 years, I've seen you share this several times, um, has produced a 10% annual return on average. You can look at several 30-year periods if you want to section off because, you know, we're looking at 30 years as average between when we're starting out and when we're going to be um, making our time frame for getting ready for retirement. And most of the 30-year periods you look at, you still wind up very, very close, if not over that 10% mark. So that's kind of, to me, that became, that's my standard. That's my, that's my benchmark for what I want to do. So then when you compare it, uh, most of the um, whole life policies that I found on average were 1.5 to 6% return, which is much less. And then, and then mine, when I actually did the numbers, which, you know, I don't want to get over anybody's head of how I calculated it. But, you know, when I looked at what I would have had over that 30-year period, meaning if I had surrendered my cash value at the end of those 30 years, my return on that was about 4%. So I had to keep the policy and pay those premiums through thick and through thin, through um, good times financially and bad times financially and come out 30 years later with a 4% return, where that if the same held true, then the 10% return produced, you know, between 50 and $60,000 more just on 
investing the difference. You know, so just the the difference in what I paid for my whole life policy, and then the amount that I've, I'm paying for term, um, that difference is what I'm investing. And over that 30 year time frame, I'm looking to at least make 50 or 60. And that's and that's really basing on kind of a low expectation. If it's a little bit higher, it becomes even more. So when you when you're able to really run the numbers side by side like that. Every single time you're going to find that a term life policy frees up so much more money for you to be able to invest and come out much better in the end. And that's kind of how that started. Absolutely. I actually just did the math while you were sharing that. And let's say an individual was investing $500 a month, right, into a whole life or an index universal life policy. And it was growing at a 4% return. At the 30-year mark, they would have give and take about $300,000 accumulated in that policy. If that same $500 was invested each month in the market, returning 10%, that amount would be over $1 million. Yeah. And that, that's just, that's a real eye-opener. And I hope that helps people understand the serious difference and and what you can get with good investments and term life insurance providing better coverage than if you invest your money in a whole life policy. I hope for anyone listening right now, insurance companies identify that there's this opportunity out there in the market. If they can create a product that they can tell people that it's going to guarantee them a return. And they might show you things like 5% or 6%. None of those returns account for the fees that are being charged. So at the end of the day, when you factor in the fees and all of that, that 5% or 6% is anywhere between 3 to 4%, like what Cody shared. And on top of that, we shared with you that over 60% of people, let's just round it up and say over a person's lifetime, 75% of individuals with these permanent insurance policies will not be able to afford them because they get expensive over time. The premium amounts that people are paying right now, they don't realize that in the future, the life insurance company can decide to increase the cost of that policy. Yeah, absolutely, which, which is never talked about. They, they never talk to you about those things. And for instance, I actually have an IUL that I was quoted when I was crunching the numbers just to kind of speak more to what you were saying. And, and what they want you to look at, and they typically will lay this out in, in three columns. One, uh, the first column is what you're paying. The middle column is the guaranteed values. And then the non-guaranteed are, are typically on the right. And at any point that I've ever had anyone look at this, they always focus on those non-guaranteed values. Exactly. And they're always numbers that try to suck you in. So, for instance, if you look at um, the IUL that I was quoted, the guaranteed value, which was never discussed, it was never looked at other than just saying that, you know, it'll never be lower than this and then quickly move into the non-guaranteed value at age 69 for me, when this was quoted, would have been the end of policy year 38. I would have paid in, uh, it was a um, $500,000 death benefit that the focus as far as, you know, you're investing, I was paying $12,000 a year. So a thousand dollars a month. Wow. would have been what I would have paid. So at year, uh, end of year 39 or 38 at age 69, I would have paid in $456,000. If you look over at your non-guaranteed values, 
my cash value was 1.1. So that sounds really good. Of course, if you look at the numbers, you're still coming out to about that four to four and a half percent return. So that same $456,000 would have done much better in the market. However, when you look at what they kind of gloss over with the guaranteed value, so this is the amount that I'm only guaranteed to have, there's never any point through the entire life of the policy, and they typically will show you up to about age 120 just to show you that it's permanent life insurance, that I ever had a cash value guaranteed that actually matched my premium. So even at year 39 or at year 38, I'm sorry, age 69, I had paid in hundred or $456,000 according to the model, but my cash surrender value was 286000 Wow. That's how much money I would have lost. So if you wanted to surrender that policy, you would have got half of what you had paid in? Yes, sir. Huge difference. And of course, the focus was never on the guaranteed value. The focus is always on the non-guaranteed value, which was positive. And, and, and more than likely, you probably would have came out a little better than that. But they always want to talk about you know, risk. But the risk is that they may only be able to give you what the guaranteed value is. And if that was the case at age 69, and I had spent all of my time focusing on this as my retirement plan, I would have actually lost somewhere around uh, 170000 I believe if I, I did that in my head, but, yeah. um, you know, 456 and, and then 286 Yeah. So literally, if you round up, almost $200,000 lost. Now, I took that $1,000 a month and I just placed it into a compound interest calculator over a 38-year period, right? So assuming you just took that money and invested it in the market versus putting it in a, an IUL or a whole life insurance policy. And after 38 years, the number here is $5.2 million. It's an amazing difference, isn't it? And the non-guaranteed value, which is what they're trying to sell you as the high point. So, so what was your number, Hans? It was $5.2 million at year 38. So at year 38 for me, if I even went by the non-guaranteed value, which is what they sell you on, my cash value would have been just 1.1, meaning in actuality, you lost $4 million, or basically, if you're averaging it out, just $4 million. Wow. This is why I stress on the fact that financial literacy is so important, Cody, because many of these life insurance agents are literally telling people to forego contributing to their 401ks. They are telling people to not put money in an IRA. They are telling them often even not to fund kids' colleges and all of that and to do all of these investment strategies for the future through permanent life insurance. Do you see how dangerous it is? I'm just so glad that you're here discussing this with me and you actually have proof in front of you so that individuals can actually understand what's going on. Absolutely. And I would encourage anybody, if you have a whole life insurance policy of any kind, whether it's the kind that I bought at 25, which is a little on the lower side, or you know the beast that we have been talking about over the past few minutes of the IUL, um, get your policy out. Look at the numbers. Compare them to what you can expect to see in just a simple um, stock market index fund that, that buys the whole U.S. economy 
or at least, you know, the way we rated it with the S&P 500, you're going to see in that you could do so much better if you just invested the money rather than throw your money in the, in the life insurance policy. And, and I, I think you spoke to a great, a great point. The, the fact that there are individuals out there, now there's some insurance agents that I think sell this because they don't fully understand it. So they're not looking at it more from a, a standpoint of whether this is best for them. They're just looking at it based on their premium. But I know there's so many and, and that are selling this based on the fact that it is a good investment, which I feel like that we have debunked that myth. Um, that are selling it on it's the best way to protect your family, which I feel like we've debunked that myth. And they know full well that the math does not and the data does not support that. And I feel like that that's the most concerning thing is that there are individuals out there that really prey upon people and tell them to forego 401ks, forego Roth IRAs, forego the, the type of, of, of investments that you would do for um, planning for your kid's education over a policy that really only benefits the person selling it. Moving forward and having us discuss something more positive because <laughs> whole life insurance by itself is just so like, I don't know, I really dislike this policy. And I, I hope for everyone listening, you learn to stay away. You know, and, and I know this is putting you on this part, but what's on your heart that you want to share with our generation? And it could be about anything. It could be something that inspires us. It could be something that causes us to think. It could be something that kind of moves us to take action. What do you feel is on your heart at this moment to just want to say to our generation? Yeah, I feel like that, especially with my faith, the one thing I've learned mainly in, in, in studying the Bible and my Christian faith is that you know everybody is worth being loved and that even in spite of all of my uh, shortcomings and my mistakes that that I feel that God really places a value on my life and feels like that he could use someone like me to make an impact on somebody else and of course you know for a Christian uh, in Christ doing what he did at Calvary for us is just the ultimate moment of love so for me knowing that I was given that, I feel like I have to be a good steward of what I was giving and share that with others. And the way that I apply that to finance, and I feel like sometimes we as Christians, we feel like that it's almost taboo to talk about money. But, you know, we're not talking about money in a sense that we want to be greedy. It's not about just laboring to be rich or wealthy. It's about laboring to take care of your family, to give them something more than what you were given. And also build upon those who came before you to give you the opportunity that you have. For instance, I I love your personal story on on the one podcast episode that you have. My personal one really quick is just that I had a grandmother that lost her husband when my mother was just six years old. At that time, she didn't work. So she only had his uh, small pension and a little bit of benefits from Black Lung. I'm from Southwest Virginia. So everybody calls this coal country. So he was a coal miner and, and that's all she had very, very little. They had a, like a four room house that they started out in. But my grandmother, even though she didn't, she didn't go past the the second grade in school, but she did so much to take care of her family and make the best out of the situation that she was given to teach them about faith and to teach them about hard work. And she worked so hard to manage her own finances, even though she had so little, that she set up 
two of her kids that became the first generation college graduates. And to me, I feel like that 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 she gave me and that that I feel like God has given me, I have to be a good steward of because I want to I want to be able to pass that on to the next generation. So for our generation, the fact that, that that as far as the Christian faith, I feel like we get told a lot of times that that we're not able, that we can't do it, that there's only certain ways to build real wealth. And I think the truth is that with wisdom and with self-education, that that anybody can take what they make and, and, and apply it wisely and be good stewards of what they're given and reach a place in their life where they're not only able to be wealthy themselves, but pass on a generational wealth. So for me, for instance, my grandmother, she passed that on to my parents or to, to my mother. And then my mother, you know, she graduated from college. And then she really pushed me my whole life to do well and, and to go to college and, and to get a good degree and, and push me all along the way that I was in school. So I feel like that it's my responsibility to take what I've been given both with my faith and with my start in life and pass that to the next generation for my family. But I also hope that I can do that for other people as well. Um, because when we focus on not just what will benefit us, but what we can do to really impact other people, to really make a difference in someone's life, to show them that they have value, that they don't have to be prisoners of, of their circumstances, that they can rise above that and they can accomplish whatever it is that they dream, that they really have value in the world, then then I think above everything else we could do in life, that's what that's what really makes someone successful. When you can take what you've been given and use that to impact another life like yours has been impacted, to use that to show someone that they are uh, valuable and that they have the ability to achieve their goals and their dreams, that to me will make me wealthy. If I can pass that on, not just to my family, but to other people. So, and then, and then as far as just, you know, with Christianity and with, with my faith, I want to be able to take care of my family. Yes. But being able to give generously, being able to really expand out beyond my family and be able to make an impact on other people is really important to me. So because of all that, uh, kind of to make a long story short, I have to really be a good steward of what I've been given. I have to take um, the money that I make because of my God-given ability to, uh, to learn and to be, to be a pharmacist and to practice in this profession and take that and, and make sure that I use it wisely so that I can be a benefit and a help to other people. Because so many people did so much for me. I want someone to be able to look back and be able to see that I had an impact and I was a turning point in their life. Something that I shared helped them to turn things around. And the only way to do that with money is to be educated, is to learn, is to continue to try to understand the way the financial system works so you can be prepared for the future. Absolutely. The Bible says that, you know, a, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, right? Absolutely. That really stands out to me. And another thing that stands out, which hit me recently, is that in the Lord's Prayer, it says, you know, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? How is heaven like, right? So if God's will should be done on earth, so in our earthly lives as it is in heaven, it's like 
Wow. So God wants us to live in abundance, you know, without worry, with peace. So all of this just goes to show that some individuals almost demonize the thought of having, whether it's wealth or having money, but money allows you to be able to really make an impact. Money allows you to be generous. Money allows you to be able to impact the lives of others. Like you said, it's something that's not discussed, and I'm just so glad that we're able to talk about that. Now, I want to shift a bit to talk about tithing. And the reason I want to bring this up, it's so random, but I was having a discussion with a friend, you know, over the past several days. And that individual said, shared something with me that I didn't know. And and Cody, I don't know if you know this, but you know Colgate toothpaste, right? Yeah. So I never knew Colgate was a strong Christian. He was a man of God, literally. And before he started his company, he promised to tithe 10% of everything that he earned from his business. And he said, God, this is me committing to do this. If you will bless me, not only will I tithe 10%, I will even increase it over time. So from the onset of his business, Colgate tithe 10%. And this business was started in like 1897 or something. He tied 10% of all of his revenue. It got to a certain point, he increased it to 20%. Then he increased it to 30%. He increased it to 40% and maxed out at about 50% of his revenue. When I heard that story and the fact that we still see Colgate toothpaste everywhere, that was like a huge testimony for me. So I don't know what you'd like to share or even with this story, what do you think about it? Yeah, I actually had not heard that. I think that's, that's a really exciting story and, and just goes to show you that, um, you know, when you put God first and you really do things the right way, you really can have an impact and you can really be blessed by the same thing. I mean, the Bible does say it's more blessed to give than to receive, but you have to give what you have. You know, you can't give something you do not have. So you have to learn how to manage what you have to be able to do that. As far as tithes in general, I think it's something that keeps you focused on what's really important because you know, as you said, money can kind of be a taboo subject. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. So the focus can't be on, you know, just certain numbers or just, you know, being rich or wealthy as your sole goal in life, but more or less the fact that you can be free, that you can have freedom to be able to do things with your family and be able to pass on something to them and leave them that inheritance and to have that impact on other people. When your focus is right, when your priorities are right, then, then, then money can become a subject for you that can be a blessing rather than something that holds you back. And as far as tithing goes, I think that's a good way to start. I, I know there's probably some uh, you know, financial things that would, or people that would say that, that you, know, you shouldn't tithe until you're out of debt or, you're, or this or that, but for me, Tithing is something that keeps me focused. It keeps me focused on the fact that my sole goal here is not just to build wealth only, but to have that impact. 
And so for me, it keeps me kind of focused on what's important, but also on um, the fact that I have to be a good steward of what I have. I keep coming back to that that point. And I completely I just love that story. And, and the thing that I would like to share, um, regardless of your belief or, or what your belief system is, to me, just speaking um, honestly as a Christian, you, you cannot outgive God. That is one thing I have discovered in my life is it is not possible to outgive him. And of all that I've given, of all that I have, have tried to do in, in, in the time that I have been a pharmacist and have actually been earning of income, I've, I've never given even a drop in the bucket. And I, and I, I kind of try to go towards the 10% rule. That, that's what I try to focus on. And hopefully one day I'll be like uh, the Colgate founder and be able to do more than that. Um, but focusing on that, you know, I've never, if I counted up all that, that, that I have given, it, it wouldn't be in comparison to what I've been blessed with. So I think it, it provides so many benefits, just the benefit of, of being able to, to give with a cheerful heart, but also to kind of help you have a starting point of how to manage your money properly. So uh, tithing is just a, a great way to do that, in my opinion. It's a phenomenal way to do that. I think it's something that is not discussed, but the blessings tied to just giving generously, I, I think is often overlooked. And um, I hope this at least brings that thought to someone. Now, shifting to talking about debt, I think this is a topic that God has called me essentially to bring this discussion to our generation. I honestly feel this way because there is such a focus on debt, the point where it becomes so concerning. Individuals are told or bombarded with messages like, don't even breathe until you are 100% debt-free. Don't, like you were sharing, don't tithe. Don't do anything. You need to get out of debt before you think about even investing for the future. And it's just so concerning. What are your thoughts about it? Because I am not against getting out of debt, but I don't feel individuals, especially when you look at the numbers, should ignore the early years of their life only to focus on paying off debt. I feel like it's something that needs to be balanced with all other important priorities in your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think certainly it kind of works two ways. I, I found both in, in, in my experience. I found people who are hyper-focused on paying off debt only. And then I found people who just feel like the financial system is broken and they're going to be in debt their entire life so they don't focus on anything. So I think the key word for me and, and what I try to do myself, or at least what I've tried to do as I've become more educated, the word you said about balance, that, that is key. Um, so being able to understand that, that, you know, like, like I actually heard you on a podcast not long ago, quote the Bible verse about, you know, the borrower is slave to the lender. And that is absolutely true. So debt has to be a part of your plan. You have to be focused on getting out of debt, but you also have to balance that against making sure that you are investing properly for the future. And to me, I think the best way to do that, the best way, this is just me personally. Um, I think the best way to do that is to break down your income in percentages. And, and really maybe that was the reason you brought up the Colgate story is because he took his 10% that he tithes and then he increased it as he went. 
because I've heard you say so many times that time is the most valuable thing that you have. That's the most impactful thing that will add wealth when you reach retirement is, is time. So being able to balance and have a percentage that you are contributing to your debt and trying to focus on paying it off, but also having a percentage that you're focused on investing and getting into those markets and getting into the systems where that it's getting in early and has the time to grow. I think it's absolutely essential. I don't think anybody should invest totally and, and just not worry about that, especially for individuals who haven't yet learned how to budget and haven't yet learned how to not go into bad debt, not to put money in things that, that lose considerable value. But you, you, can't, you can't ignore investing. You have to focus on them and focus on them both early because the whole goal for me and, and for myself and when I talk to other people about it is it's not a number necessarily, although we can look at numbers and we can come up with pretty good estimates of where you need to be and things of that nature. It's about financial freedom. Absolutely, Hans. You spoke to it perfectly. There has to be a balance. Absolutely, Cody. I believe there should be a balance. And I feel like a lot of these financial experts and um, just individuals in the financial space are not approaching this conversation or this discussion from a place of balance. I feel being debt-free is a goal, right? It's a journey we're on. We're putting money towards that. But also we need to be investing, building wealth for the future, right? Because a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. How can you do that without starting to invest? You can't. Cody, I often like to say that you can spend your entire life putting money towards debt. And sure, you can throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm debt free. But what does that really mean? Can you quit your job just because you're debt free? Can you stop working? Can you pass on something valuable to the next generation just because you're debt-free? You cannot. So I feel that's a conversation that needs to be had so that individuals learn to balance these priorities. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be a part of a, of a total plan. For everyone listening, Cody, any final words that you want to share with us as you know, a farewell message. I hope if anyone listening today gets anything from it, it's what you said a few moments ago in that you have the ability to educate yourself. You have the ability to build wealth just as much as the next person. The only difference is the time and effort you're putting in to understanding how money works and how you can properly manage what you make to maximize your benefits for now and for the future. Uh, Cody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing from your heart, sharing your experiences, being willing to actually bring the documents that you had from, that you received from, you know, the insurance agent and actually diving into these numbers to help me help others stay clear of these types of permanent life insurance policies. Now, for anyone who perhaps just wants to connect with you, where is the best place for them to find you uh, so that, uh, yeah, they can use that as a means to connect if you're open to that? 
Yeah, I'm absolutely open to that. So probably the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn currently. Um, doing some things that I may be available on more things in the future and, and we can maybe uh, let people know that when those become available. I think the best way right now to get up with me is through LinkedIn and feel free. I love talking about personal finance. I love talking about life in general. And if there's anything that I can do to help or to provide just examples from my own life or just to give you an ear to talk to about investing or about um, personal finance, about your career, about life in general, I'm open to everything. My goal is to be able to be a benefit to um, anybody that I can be. So I think probably the best way is just to um, get up with me through my LinkedIn profile. And then also, um, I don't mind a bit to give out uh, 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 my email. You can email me at uh, cojack2011 at gmail.com. If that's the preferred method for you, I'd be open to that as well. I'll put all of this information in the podcast notes so that you can certainly reach Cody that way. Brother, thank you so much for being generous with your time, being generous with your knowledge. It was an incredible time today, and I'm just so grateful that uh, you just shared your experience with us. And I look forward to having us have further dialogues in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Hans. I'm very grateful for the opportunity.